Okay, hello, this is Rob and Joshua with another episode of Straight Talk No Chaser, where we address high profile criminal cases from both the prosecution's viewpoint as well as the defense's. Um, if you notice from our name has changed from our last episode. We did say though that the name was in flux. Before we begin, want to address a mistake that we made in our last episode. We inadvertently stated that Mr. Arbery was, I believe, approximately 34 years old at the time of his death when in actuality he was 25. Uh, we want to talk about some of the updates in the Ahmad Arbery case, as well as the latest developments in the George Floyd case. But we were asked to give our opinion about the Breonna Taylor matter that occurred in Kentucky. Now, no charges have been brought in that case, so it sort of falls outside of what we are attempting to do and that we are want to discuss cases and what may transpire at any potential trial. But let's talk about just briefly what we know about the Breonna Taylor case thus far and what, if any, potential charges could be brought. This occurred in mid-March of 2020. Breonna Taylor was home at her apartment with her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, when the police uh, executed or served what's called a no-knock warrant and that is when they can enter a residence and they don't have to announce who they are. I believe the information that has been shared is that there was a person who had already been arrested on drug charges and he lived some miles away from Ms. Taylor's home. However, law enforcement had information that there was another individual, I believe, who had received a drug package at Ms. Taylor's apartment. So they went there to search the apartment and they went there at night where you could say, well, this could have been done during the day or some other time. The police state that although they had a no-knock warrant, they did announce themselves as law enforcement that when they attempted to enter the home, they were fired upon by Mr. Walker. Mr. Walker struck one of the officers in the leg. That officer, as well as other officers, returned fire and ended up shooting and killing Miss Taylor. She was struck eight times. I believe there is a 911 call where Mr. Walker calls the police and states someone tried to break into his home, paraphrasing, and shot and killed his girlfriend. Mr. Walker was originally charged with attempted first-degree murder, and that's for shooting at the police officers. That charge has been, um, excuse me, that charge was later dismissed. I believe the chief of police there has also resigned and the FBI has opened up an investigation. Like we said, there are no charges pending at this time, but if we just sort of think in terms of what, if any potential charges, Joshua, do you see that could possibly come from this, just based on the limited information that we have so far? Based on the limited information that we have so far, for the officers in the killing of Ms. Taylor, there, there could be a couple of bases. It's difficult to say with what we know now that a murder charge with premeditation, deliberation, or even in the heat of, heat of passion could be substantiated based on the circumstances that we know now. That could change and is subject to change. However, you could pursue things we had discussed uh, in our last episode the felony murder rule that we have here in North Carolina. We are not as well versed on Kentucky law. I haven't had the opportunity to go in depth into Kentucky law to see the basis of, of what that could, that could bring about in terms of criminal charges in Kentucky. However, if they do operate under a felony murder rule uh, in that state, they could use an underlying felony where during the commission of a felony, someone is killed as a result of, trying to perpetrate the felony, whether you complete the act or not. In this case, the officers obviously fired a weapon in an occupied dwelling that is a felony. Under that, they could be charged with discharging a firearm in an occupied dwelling and under felony murder rule because Ms. Taylor died as a result of such a discharge uh, that could be substantiated as felony murder in the case. There's also some argument at least 
what comes to mind is possible use of excessive force in executing their warrant. Um, if that is substantiated and could be found, that also could be uh, part of a basis for charging them with felony murder, which obviously under the circumstances in North Carolina law, felony murder carries with it the same degree of sentencing as first degree murder. You just don't have to prove the premeditation and the deliberation to commit murder, but as a result of committing the felony, someone was killed in the process, and that carries with it the same sentence and degree of um, punishment. So under the circumstances that we know now, which is very limited, and, I, and I, I don't want to opine too, too far into it without knowing more, obviously these things are under investigation, and they have a long road ahead of them in terms of firing and return fire and who, who fired first and was the, the knock and announce actually done and performed and substantiating those things is all going to be part of the investigation. As, as we know more, we'll be able to opine further as to possible charges and what that could mean uh, at a possible trial coming up in the future. And I like or appreciate it that you characterized it as the the killing of Miss Taylor. And the reason I yes. say that is that that's not in any way meant to diminish the tragedy in terms of what happened. But murder is a legal term, and there are certain definitions that have to be met. If charges are brought, I, in terms of like I said, what we know now, I don't see it being less than murder. And the reason I say that is that the firing of the weapon is an intentional act. So that wouldn't get it down to a manslaughter. And, and when I say that, you couldn't be charged, they couldn't be charged with manslaughter because manslaughter, um, like you said, for us, we have two degrees. One, um, we have voluntary manslaughter or, invol or involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter if they have, Kentucky has a similar law to ours, wouldn't fit in that that's either done in the heat of passion, like you stated, I think we talked about that last episode, or you're acting in, well, now I'll change that. If you're acting in self-defense and you use too much force. So maybe then that's a possible argument. I was thinking more along the terms of involuntary manslaughter and that you're acting in a, you're doing an inherently dangerous act and acting in a reckless way. So maybe once again, that might be something in terms of saying, well, firing into an occupied property, firing to a home at night, there is the likelihood that you are going to injure someone, possibly cause death. So now that we're talking that out now, I see perhaps that that might be um, a route to go. But, but like you said, um, as we get more information, or rather, if charges are brought, then that's something we can definitely discuss in a later episode. But we, we appreciate those who contacted us and asked us to, um, you know, at least speak on that. Uh, I want to shift gears and let's discuss the latest developments in the Ahmad Arbery case of where we had discussed before the McMichaels, Gregory and his son, Travis, Michael had been charged with felony murder and I believe assault and William Bryan, the person who videotaped what happened was charged with attempted false imprisonment and I believe um, felony assault. Um, Georgia recently had a prelim preliminary hearing a couple of days ago and let's talk about in terms of what that preliminary hearing is or, or was, what is the purpose um, what does each side hope to gain um, during a preliminary hearing? I believe a preliminary hearing in, in, this, in this situation is very, very much akin to what we see in North Carolina as a probable cause hearing. A probable cause uh, is a very low threshold to meet in pushing forward in a criminal matter. Essentially, what the prosecution is attempting to do is to substantiate the charges and allegations against a criminal defendant so that the judge is satisfied to move forward on a criminal trial should the defendant choose to take their case to trial. Now, we uh, said I mean, in terms of like in terms of convincing the judge, what, what is the standard? Is the prosecution saying that our case is proven beyond a reasonable doubt at this point? 
No, not at all. It's it's a very low threshold in that they just have to show that there is reasonably trustworthy and reliable information to substantiate and corroborate the allegations they have against a criminal defendant. Uh, they're not at this stage of the trial proceedings attempting to prove the guilt or innocence of the defendant, rather that they have a reasonable and justifiable basis to put this tribal issue in front of a jury or in front of a judge, depending on the degree of severity. In this case, with the Mott Arbery, we're dealing with felony murder. We're dealing with a high-profile felony. They're, they're attempting to substantiate. They have reasonably trustworthy and reliable information to take that information in front of a jury and allow 12 members of that community from a cross-section of the community to decide the guilt or innocence of the three defendants in the trial this upcoming. And the only thing I think I'd add about that is that when people hear it or terms of when they hear it in terms of criminal trial, they do they can think in terms of, of guilt or innocence. And that's how we would talk in, you know, everyday life, you know, we're talking, you know, at a bar, a restaurant, you know, what have you, and say when we talk about this case. Um, but for the prosecution, I would think they're not so much saying in terms of guilt or innocence, but maybe just in terms of guilt or or not guilty or they're saying to the judge that we do have uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt and like you said even though that they're not their burden isn't to um, convince anyone of proof beyond a reasonable doubt at this point but certainly you would think or they'd have ethical duty of not pursuing it if they didn't think that their evidence would support guilt beyond a, a reasonable doubt um now, we had talked about something in terms of, of offline. Um, let's talk about discovery and, and what that means and the burden that the prosecution has. So, for instance, discovery is all of the evidence in a case, and by law, that all of that has to be turned over. And as the prosecution, am I at a disadvantage if by presenting all of that evidence to you as the defense attorney at this stage, or should I withhold some of the things that I, that I have? Well, you, 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 I mean, I think you hit the nail squarely on the head. They have an ethical duty to disclose everything. It doesn't put them at a tactical disadvantage. Uh, if anything, it gives the, the defense uh, the opportunity to review the evidence that the prosecutor is going to move forward and likely to use. Uh, so that that in and of itself, it's is is very beneficial, not necessarily for the prosecutor. It doesn't put them at a disadvantage because you don't know who all what all witnesses they're going to call. But when you know how many witnesses they could call or how much evidence they could use, it does allow a defense attorney to give proper counsel and advice to their client based on the charges that the defendant is facing as to how to proceed and move forward. Obviously. Uh, the decision uh, to go to trial or to testify at trial belongs solely to the defendant. The tactics, though, in how you go about doing that uh, are the decisions of defense counsel. And what, what, this, what this does, this, this reciprocal discovery rule does, is it affords both sides the opportunity to take a reasonable and equitable look at the case from all of the angles with all of the evidence that's going to be used. And if there's room to negotiate because the prosecutor feels they don't have as strong of a case as they would like, and the defense feels like they don't have as strong of a case as they would like, there is um, a middle ground where a plea agreement can be reached or plea offers can be given or rejected. Uh, and all of that can be done in the interim time between things like the preliminary hearing and your actual trial date. Uh, so as far as an advantage or disadvantage, if anything, I feel that the defense has um, an advantage in, in helping their client resolve how they feel about moving forward more so than anything due to the reciprocal discovery rule. Yeah, I like you know, when we talk about in terms of, you know, possible advantage for, you know, either side or a particular for the defense. Like I said, so prosecutor has ethical duty by law, everything they have, even if it's something that hurts their case, they have to turn that over to the defense. And prosecutor can think of it in terms of, I can give you everything, it doesn't matter, this train is going forward, you can't do anything to stop it or derail it. 
But from the defense's viewpoint, like I said, it gives them an opportunity to be able to say, look, this is what they have. It gives us more of an insight in terms of what they think happened, whether we, you know, as the defense, you agree with it or not, you at least say, this is how they think this went down because this is what they're, they're laying out um, to the judge. I want to talk a little bit about the defense's role and what they may have done and the reasons they did it in that hearing. Uh, but before we do that, another thing that we had sort of mentioned offline, prosecutor ethical duty to turn over everything. And the mere fact of I'm, I'm playing the role of prosecutor, the mere fact that I have turned over everything to you, does that automatically mean that I'm going to be able to use it at trial? And if not, why? No, it doesn't. There are, there are rules of evidence that determine the admissibility or what evidence you can use against a criminal defendant at trial. We have rules that uh, limit admissibility. We have exceptions to admissibility that allow certain information in for specific purposes. And those, those, those rules operate as checks and balances on the system. It's not the wild, wild west in court like, like some people may, may tend to believe. You do have to uh, gauge things and monitor things. And then some people believe, you know, well, this evidence should come in. It's, it's relevant or it's important. And that may be true, but if it doesn't meet a certain standard or its admissibility is limited to keep the proceedings fair and equitable and, and, and in the gray area, because I think one thing that, that we can posit to our listeners is that if you go to trial, typically it's, it's because there's evidence on both sides and there is an argument on both sides to be made. If you have an open and shut case on one side or the other, it can move forward, but likely we see those situations come out in a plea agreement or a dismissal. Uh, if the defense has all of the great evidence in the state or the prosecutor's office doesn't have any great evidence, chances are the state is gonna dismiss that case. Uh, and not no, always, it's, it's not a guarantee, but uh, that is forget, something that can happen. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt in terms of, don't, don't forget in terms of, we have had open and shut cases of where <laughs> it didn't um, open and shut from the prosecution's viewpoint. And we've yes. had them where they didn't go our way um, because it was open and shut. And we've had open and shut cases from the prosecution viewpoint where it did go our way. And Very our true. Were, uh, so. uh, and I do apologize for being a little bit, maybe too cerebral on that. The real world uh, interpretation is just that. There are no guarantees regardless of what the evidence is. Sometimes things can go forward with what we feel like as a defense team can't go forward. And there's no way the jury can find um, uh, someone guilty of, of a crime based on that evidence. And it, and it goes that way regardless. Uh, the, the, the same can also be true. And we feel like we're fighting an uphill battle and we're, you know, clinched up the whole time because we don't know how things are going to shake out and we wind up getting a favorable result. So, Again, with the criminal justice system, there, there are no guarantees except for your right to have your day in court. That is guaranteed to you, uh, and that's why it's important to look at all of the circumstances and evidence and situations in the case. And regardless of uh, what the prosecutor believes to be open and shut or the defense believes to be open and shut, uh, you always have to leave it up to um, the human element of the criminal justice system as to understanding that uh, either a human being is sitting on the in the judge's seat that's going to be making a determination or there's going to be 12 of your peers sitting in a jury box um, deliberating and making that decision. And while we're talking about evidence, what are some of the new things that we learned from the preliminary hearing? Yeah, so uh, there's video evidence that's come out and there's reports and we went into some length and detail about that in our last episode. So I won't, I won't re rehash those issues. Uh, but the GBI assistant special agent in charge, Richard Dial testified at the preliminary hearing and he testified to several different things that we didn't know uh, during our last recording. Um, one of the, the main issues was that the shotgun was fired three times, and that's what resulted in the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Um, and there's also testimony from Brian, um, who is the third man charged, William Brian, that Travis McMichael, who was holding the shotgun and fired the shot, uh, used a racial epithet to censor this for our audience, calling him uh, the F word and the N word in conjunction with each other 
after the three blasts from the shotgun were fired. Um, the special agent Dial also testified to during his investigation of Mr. Travis McMichael's social media accounts, found several racial epithets, some of them violent in nature towards the black community. Uh, and that's, that's important, and I'll let you opine on this uh, more so than me, uh, because when you begin to use evidence like that, a certain rule of evidence comes into play. That rule of evidence is 404A and B. Uh, 404A evidence would be a propensity evidence, which is essentially excluding that evidence if it's being offered to show because you once did something bad in the past, you have to be guilty of the bad thing you're charged with now. That, if it's used for that purpose, that evidence doesn't come in. However, if it's used under 404B, there are several exceptions. Uh, motive or intent can be established with such evidence or also lack of mistake. So I'll let you go into a little more detail as to what you think uh, the purpose of that evidence may have been offered for uh, based on your expertise at the preliminary hearing from Special Agent Dial. Yeah, when I heard the um, statements that were attributed to Travis McMichael, uh, my initial thought was that this is being offered or the, the prosecution, <clears throat> excuse me, prosecution would try to offer it to show state of mind in terms of what was going in, what was going on in Travis McMichael's mind in terms of as a possible motive as to why he was running or driving after Mr. Arbery and why he would perhaps have that um, in terms of intent to kill um, at that particular time. But, you know, when we mentioned they aren't charged with premeditation and deliberation in terms of first degree murder under premeditation and deliberation. Um, but the prosecution was still seeked off in terms of this is what they were thinking at the time. I think there is a stronger argument to try to get in that statement of what Travis McMichael said at the moment um, after he shot and killed Mr. Arbery. I think prosecution would have a stronger, um, excuse me, a harder time and the defense would file motions to keep it out in terms of statements that he made at some other time in terms of using um, these race, racial remarks. It sort of makes me think about the OJ trial and the defense got in all of these statements about Mark Furman. Um, and that, you know, that's going to be determination by the judge, but I think the defense would say in terms of any statements that are remote in time, they are not going to be relevant. Um, so, but that would be something in terms of they, they'd have to litigate. But when we talked about earlier, it's evidence that the prosecution has, so they have to turn it over, even though they may be thinking to themselves, I'm gonna have a harder time trying to get in some of these more remote statements, uh, but they collected it, so they have to provide it. Um, we talked about, you mentioned some of the evidence regarding to uh, Travis McMichael. Was there any additional evidence offered regarding Mr. Bryant? Um, there may have, yeah, Mr. Bryant also uh, told police uh, during his investigations in, or during the investigation in his interrogations uh, that he believed Mr. Arbery was trying to enter his truck at one point. Um, so there has been some back and forth in terms of evidentiary matters of what was really taking place. I thought in terms of going back just briefly to 404B and a possible argument for the prosecution, because as defense attorneys, a lot of times uh, folks think we, we see things one way, but you have to learn to see things from both sides in order to do a proper job and, and give your client the best, the best possible outcome in determining strategy and also determining uh, what you're going to do next in your steps is that uh, during the pursuit, there is some evidence that has been revealed to Special Agent Dial that during the pursuit, uh, before the engagement, because initially in our first podcast, there was some question as to why Mr. Arbery would engage Travis McMichael with a shotgun uh, under those circumstances. There's evidence now to show that not only was he pursued by vehicle, uh, by Travis and Gregory McMichael and uh, William Bryan, but that at one point during the pursuit, he was headed off with the McMichael's vehicle and actually hit with the side of the vehicle, which Officer or Special Agent Dial testified to in terms of self-defense. That changes 
a little bit of the narrative or at least moving forward how a self-defense claim could or could not be used in the case, which uh, was, was new information as well. Um, Mr. Bryan's attorney also stated that he was working from his front porch uh, and that he didn't have any idea as to what was going on between the McMichaels uh, and Mr. Arbery at the time. Um, so that, that's, again, going to try to establish that Mr. Bryan is not acting in concert with or a, a part of a criminal conspiracy to apprehend or kill Mr. Arbery in the in in a in a assault uh, as was originally claimed. So we we see some facts going in some different directions that we didn't see before, based on some of this evidence that has come out now as a result of the preliminary hearing. Yeah, one thing that sort of stood out to me regarding that hearing is that it confirmed what we we're already suspecting uh, when we last spoke about this is that we were saying Travis Gregory McMichael, father and son, their, their defense is probably going to be, you know, mm -hmm. like, like that. Um, and that they probably, obviously they've spoken and they say, this is what happened. Um, and this is our, our line of defense moving forward. But now with the introduction of Brian, we said that Brian is going to be looking out for Brian. And that's what it appears that he is doing. And now that the Michaels know Brian is not with us, Brian is already given statements against us to law enforcement. If this goes to trial, Brian will probably be called as a witness against the McMichaels. Um, when we were talking about the advantage for the defense in that they can see where the prosecution is going, there is some advantage to the prosecution because now through this hearing, they have an insight um, more into the defense's um, defense at this point in that the defense obviously raised self-defense, which you know everyone sort of knew that that was coming. But I got asked about a statement um, that was attributed to the Michaels in that when we talked about the, the racial slurs, and one of their attorneys, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, said something along the lines of, you know, hey, this is Georgia. Um, and that's not, you know, you know, beyond the pale in terms of you can find people down here in terms of who, who use that kind of statement. And someone contacted me and said, well, why would the defense say, say that? And I think the reason being is that what they'll definitely try to do at trial and maybe laying the groundwork for that now is that the mere fact that this information may be introduced, you have to blunt it somehow. So if you're the defense attorney, if you're saying, okay, this is going to come out, I have to give an explanation as to why my client said it. So their line of thinking or their line of defense would be that, yes, although my client did say this, um, you probably have a whole lot of people around here who have said it but that doesn't necessarily make them a person, doesn't make them a murderer. So you can say he, they can be racist for saying it, um, but that doesn't make them someone who wants to go out and kill someone because of it. Yeah, I think uh, just, to, just, to throw, just to throw in another, um, well, not necessarily another, but just to throw in two cents on that is, you know, being a racist doesn't equate to automatically being a murderer. And I think that is, it's essentially what the defense is trying to do. There's no, in my opinion, and this is opinion uh, separated from fact, there's no good way to draw the sting out of things like that, especially, especially having progressed as far as we have, have and seeing some of the effects of these interactions and these, these types of cases in our societies, in our communities that we're all going through and, and, and struggling to get through right now. Uh, but again, I think that's, I think that's the proper way to, to determine it is that we're not, I don't believe there was any intent on the defense counsel's part to condone such statements or to say, hey, that's not a big deal, don't worry about that. But at some point you have to try to draw the sting because the sting is coming of those statements and, and it's gonna hit the media and it's gonna, it's gonna affect your jury pool, it's gonna affect uh, the ability that you have to represent your client. You have to do what you can under reasonable circumstances to say, what you can to try to draw the sting as best you can, even though 
sometimes you find yourself as a defense attorney and as a prosecutor in different in different cases you're attempting to draw the sting and you know it's it's inadequate on several levels uh, society that society would deem adequate anyway uh, or on a community level but you still have that job to do because your job is to either represent the state uh, and their interests or to represent your client and their interests so uh, I would agree with the assessment on that in terms of um, not holding the defense attorney accountable to say that he's also a racist because he made the statement, but he has to address racist comments and call them what they are. And a racist comment is a racist comment. It does not equate to automatically becoming a murderer because you're a racist. And I think that is the, that was the intent, or at least that's what I believe to be the intent based on what I've read and what I've seen coming out of those statements. And one more, I guess, thing I want to mention about the Arbery preliminary hearing. I saw um, someone post online that their one of their attorneys um, didn't even ask any questions, just made statements. And then I think someone also said, well, like the McMichaels never or Brian never testified at the hearing. First, I think regarding in terms of the attorney not asking questions, I can see that as being strategic or tactical in that we've talked about both sides are gaining something from this hearing. But if I am the defense attorney and I already know this is going to trial and I'm going to cross-examine this investigator at trial, why would I go through my whole line of questioning at this point to give him a heads up of, you know, to be prepared for those questions? Um, but what are your thoughts on the McMichaels or Brian not testifying at the preliminary hearing and why would that decision be made? Well, I think it, it falls in line with a lot of what you just said is you have reciprocal discovery rule where you're going to know all of the facts, all of the evidence and all of the potential witnesses that are going to come out at trial to substantiate or corroborate the charges that you're facing as a defendant. Uh, as a defendant under the constitution is your right to testify. And that is, a, that is also a tactical decision. It's not just a right that you hold and preserve and that your attorney can't tell you, you can't testify if you choose to. If you choose to testify on your behalf, that is, that is solely your constitutional right to do so. However, if that's going to be your choice, there are certain things that you can do to, you know, tactically prepare for your defense at trial. If you're going to testify, you do not, I, it, and it would be my advice not to give the prosecutor an opportunity to run through a cross-examination of you and see what your answers are going to be at trial. I'd much rather have them deal with that information in real time and on the fly. And that will show it acts as a checks and balance. The way I see it is like this. If I testify at a preliminary trial and I'm a defendant, and I'll just use this hypothetical, and I give the prosecutor a free shot at, at, at cross-examining me, and he kind of gets a feel for what my answer is going to be or what the narrative that I'm going to lay out is as to my perceptions of the case, then when we get to trial, he can then begin to build on that and, and begin to tactically put together a cross-examination that is built and geared towards cross-examining me specifically. Uh, the checks and balances is that you don't know everything at trial. And if I want to take the stand and testify. It's up to the prosecutor then to be prepared for those things, regardless of any knowledge of that beforehand. So the preparation aspect of holding the state accountable to do their research, to do their homework and have cross-examinations prepared to a degree of certainty that they know what they can get out and what they need to ask in order to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury then becomes a tactical decision. So you give information on the front end, it helps them prepare even more so to try to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. If they have it, they have it, but let's make them show that they have it because they've prepared and they've done their job, not because we've given them everything they needed on the front end to just walk through it at trial. So I think it's a tactical decision uh, based, on, based on my experience to say, well, you have all this evidence and information, we know what you intend to use, 
if I decide to testify or not, that is my decision. And tactically, you should be prepared for whether I testify or not at trial. And we'll see if you are prepared at trial because you should be under the, under the terms and circumstances and the severity and gravity of a case like this. And if either the McMichaels or Brian had testified at the preliminary hearing, that hearing would have, their testimony would have obviously been under oath. They would have been locked into any statement that they made, meaning that if they said A, B, and C during the preliminary hearing, but at trial, their testimony was D, E, and F, then the prosecutor would have been able to say, well, you just said this like last year or what have you, cross-examine them about that. And if the McMichaels or Brian chose not to testify at trial, exercise their constitutional right, their statements at the preliminary hearing could still be used against them, could still be introduced by the prosecution to discredit any um, part of their defense. All right, well, I think we did a <clears throat> good uh, overview of that. Let's talk about, <clears throat> if we can briefly, um, about the George Floyd case. And obviously that is something that has gripped the country and even like around the world in terms of what happened with Mr. Floyd. Let's go over just briefly in terms of what we may know about that. We have, this occurred a few weeks ago, there was a call for service, which is a 911 call of an attempted forgery. I've, I've read conflicting reports with that in terms of if mm -hmm. Mr. Floyd actually uh, presented a counterfeit $20 bill. I read something from the clerk who said he didn't know if Mr. Floyd knew that the bill was counterfeit, but nonetheless, police are called. Mr. Floyd is still on scene, still at that location. He's in his vehicle. He's taken out of his vehicle, placed into the police car. There is a video from a different angle video of showing where Mr. Floyd is in the back seat of the patrol car. And you see something going on as if there's some commotion, there's something going on between the officers and Mr. Floyd. Mr. Floyd is taken out of the vehicle. He's handcuffed. He subsequently placed on the ground and we have all seen that video of where officer or former officer Derek um, Siobhan or Shaven, I'm not quite sure the pronunci pronunciation, um, has his knee on the back of Mr. Floyd's neck for approximately eight and a half minutes. Um, you see in terms of an officer come or a former officer perhaps come check Mr. Floyd if he has a pulse. Um, there are people on the tape telling Derek Siobhan that Mr. Floyd um, needs to be released. You can hear Mr. Floyd say that he can't breathe. Um, and Mr. Floyd dies from that encounter with Derek Chauvin. Um, Derek Chauvin was originally charged with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Those charges have been raised to second degree murder as well as the three other officers who were present have all been charged with accessory to second degree murder. Um, that's like the overview as I remember it. Have I, have I, have I missed anything or anything you think uh, we need to, to talk about before we talk about the charges? No, I, I think that's a, I think that's a fair estimation. I would say that the exact time was eight minutes and 46 seconds with over one minute, uh, close to two minutes uh, while Mr. Mr. Floyd was uh, unconscious and non-responsive and then one minute uh, over over one minute 60 seconds before the paramedics arrive and get and get him removed from the scene and put on a backboard which um, you know is is just a if you've seen the video uh, your heart can't help but go out to the family and um, I say that I say that because that's how it makes me feel is it's it was a difficult thing to watch but those details and facts do become more and more important as we see the investigation go on and continue and you don't realize how long eight minutes and 46 seconds um is until if you just sit 
um, or do nothing and just watch that time pass. I was at a, a um, protest rally and they had a moment of silence, which they've done like uh, in other places as well for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And you don't realize in terms of how long of a time that is. Um, I want to talk about in terms of the charges being raised, um, whether or not that is proper to, to do so. Uh, but before we, we go through that, let me, if I could just go through in terms of my understanding of the, of the homicide um, laws for, for Minnesota. So Minnesota does have first degree murder. Um, mm -hmm. They do have premeditation, which we've talked about um, in that there is some premeditation re refers to the ability to form the intent to kill over some period of time, no matter how short. Sometimes people think, well, premeditation means you have to have planned this. And that's not what it means. Uh, it just means you had to form that intent to kill. They also have felony murder, which you've discussed in terms of if you commit certain felonies, such as arson, robbery, rape, and someone dies during the course of that, that you can also be charged with first degree murder. They have second degree murder like we do, but their second degree murder is different in that they have intentional second degree murder and unintentional second degree murder. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chauvin has been charged with unintentional second degree murder, which is that you commit a, a felony and someone dies as a result. I believe they have two degrees of uh, manslaughter, and he was charged with second degree. No, I apologize, I left out. They also have third degree murder, um, mm -hmm. which is if you act with a depraved heart and someone dies as a result of you doing this inherently risky act. And then they go into manslaughter, and he was charged with second degree manslaughter um, in that you do something that is you act with negligence, do like a risky act, and someone dies as a result. Now, I can't remember, was he also charged with, um, yeah, th that, that, that was the charge. I can't remember, was there, was there anything else? Um, right. But the first question I had asked, he's charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, uh, and now an independent prosecutor's office, the attorney general's office, raised it. Is there anything improper about charges being raised once a suspect has been initially charged is that unusual it's not it's not unusual it's not it's not as common as as uh as some would would want it to be or or believe it to be especially those those family members that go through tragic events but it, it is something that can be done and it and it is ethical to do so if during the course of your investigation you uncover evidence or facts that would create an enhancement to the crimes that you've alleged against a defendant. The, the prosecutor's office has a duty to, in, to raise the degree of severity of the charges that have been alleged against a defendant in order that justice be done. That's part of the justice system. Uh, it may not be something that um, some people like on either side, uh, but it is, it is proper and it is, is ethically required for them to do so, just just as if during their investigation they charge you with second degree murder and the facts and evidence do not bear that out, uh, they have an ethical duty to try to reduce that crime and and charge you with a lesser degree or a lesser crime because the facts and circumstances don't substantiate or corroborate uh, that type of charge. And sometimes those things can be borne out in a preliminary hearing, like we discussed in the Ahmad Arbery case. Sometimes those things happen during the course of an investigation, but in, in, my, in my estimation, based on legal training and experience, it is proper and ethical to do those types of things. And when you said in terms of as a prosecutor learns or uncovers new information, I was just speaking to two separate colleagues this week who each had clients who were charged with first degree murder and both of those clients had their cases dismissed in terms of there was probable cause to believe that they were had committed the crime of first degree murder. Um, but upon further investigations, speaking to witnesses, prosecutors deemed that the charges against those two individuals in two separate cases um, should be dismissed. Um, <clears throat> 
when we talk about the the differences between first, second, third degree murder, is there an argument though that this is a first degree murder case in that I think in our experience, prosecutors typically go for or charge for the highest defense that's supported by the evidence. And that's probably why a lot of people were surprised at the initial charge of third degree murder. But is there, in your opinion, an argument that this is a first degree murder case? Um, and if so, why? There, tends, there seems to be, according to the reports that I've read, an argument that is hinging heavily on the resisting of, of Mr. Floyd as to why the actions uh, were taken by the officers to do what they did. Uh, however, as, as I think about it in a legal sense of things and try to separate as much emotion from it as you, as you can, which you, you can't do that to a great degree because of the, the nature of the offense and the video that, that we've all seen that's been released. I, I do believe there is an argument uh, for first degree murder because I do believe that when you talk about in law, as you eloquently laid out before with premeditation, it's a moment. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, Chauvin's plan for that day to go out and kill a suspect or kill a black man or a white man or any person that comes into his purview. He doesn't have to have that plan beforehand. He didn't have to know George Floyd before that day or after reviewing his record, decide to do that. He could decide that in a moment and I believe there's evidence to show that when you see, when you see George Floyd in handcuffs on the ground, uh, you see one vantage point of the video that's facing Chauvin and it appears to be just him on the back and neck of Mr. Floyd. But when you see the video from the other side, you see the other two officers on his lower back and his legs. So there are three officers uh, at, at one point uh, during this eight minutes and 46 seconds that have their knees and body weight holding this man down. Uh, and for knowing what we know about human anatomy and with the training that we all have in a basic biology course, one of the most vulnerable places on a human being is the throat and the neck. It's, it's, you don't play around with that. We even teach our kids, hey, you don't, you don't hit anybody there. You don't, you don't try to hurt anybody there. You don't choke anybody there because you can do irreparable damage. I believe there's an argument that could have been made and perhaps should have been made that during this eight minutes and 46 seconds, the prerequisite intent and premeditation that would be required from first for first degree murder could be established by never removing uh, throughout all of the calls for help, all of the calls to stop, all of the calls for I can't breathe, uh, my heart hurts, my chest hurts, I need some water, I'm struggling. During all of those times that we, we have all watched and heard, I believe you could establish, uh, you know, I won't opine as to whether you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt or not, but based on what we've discussed already about probable cause and how low that threshold is, to put forward to a jury of 12 people, whether they could establish in open court that he, he formed the requisite intent of premeditation at some point during that eight minutes and 46 seconds and acted with the intent to not move, not get off, which resulted uh, in the death of George Floyd. Upon my estimation and, and viewing that video and the research that I've done and the materials that I've read, uh, I do believe that that was a charge that could have been brought in this case. They chose not to. And like I said, I don't know all of the facts and information and evidence that they're viewing and what they're looking into, but based on my estimation from what I have seen and what I have been privy to, I do believe they could have gone forward uh, with that charge uh, based on probable cause, at least at a preliminary stage. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there is, and I've had online discussions um, with some other attorneys across the um, you know, in terms of different Facebook groups, some have, you know, said that they, they recognize that there could have, there is an argument. I've had some say adamantly that there is not an argument uh, for first degree and that, um, you know, even the second degree is, is too high. And like you said earlier, um, you know, trials are not absolute. There's always an argument for it for something. Uh, but when I, but I think in terms of 
because we say that if this was a case that had occurred elsewhere or if it wasn't a police officer, I think that it would have been a clear decision for first degree. And then I try to weigh that with comments I saw Keith Ellison make on cable news before the original charges were even brought. And he had stated that he was in communication with the elected DA in that county and that they didn't want to make a, they were couching as a mistake that you've seen in some other cases of where officers were charged. Um, no, he mentioned notably um, the Freddie Gar uh, Gray case out of uh, Baltimore of where it resulted and none of the officers uh, were convicted. He said that they didn't, and you had Walter Scott in South Carolina, I believe that was a originally a hung jury and then became a federal case. So I think he was thinking in terms of not wanting to appear to be reaching um, in order to ensure that they could obtain a conviction. Because when you talk about in terms of, like I said, we're not being there and they haven't called us yet. Um, if they do, sure, we'll talk to them. But, you know, they haven't called us yet. The differences between felony murder for first degree and felony murder for second degree. So if they were thinking that it might be hard for us to prove premeditation uh, for under first degree murder because this is an approved, despite the fact that other police agencies have said, no, do not do this. Um, mm -hmm. And despite the fact that it appears that there have been approximately, I think I read maybe 40 cases in Minnesota of where it has resulted in people losing consciousness. It is a, an approved tactic with the Minnesota Police Department. Mm -hmm. And maybe they felt that that might be hard to convince all 12 people that he had the intent, speaking of Shaven, Chauvin, had the intent to kill when he is using a tactic that they are authorized to do. Felony murder under first degree murder in Minnesota lays out specific um, crimes that can occur that you can use it for. And we mentioned robbery, arson, rape. Uh, in North Carolina, those crimes are listed in our statute as well, but our case law has sort of extended that to crimes that um, other felonies if a firearm has, is used. So in this case, the argument is, I believe, if they felt we couldn't prove on the prosecution they're saying we couldn't prove or we had issues under premeditation and deliberation under first degree it doesn't fall under felony murder for our first degree statute so then we go to the next um homicide crime which is second degree and we talked about in terms of intentional where they say well he didn't probably intend to kill him he intended to harm him, intended, thought he was just going to choke him out. Um, and then, you know, they revive him later. But he's not intending to kill him on the street in front of witnesses, but he tended to hurt that man. Um, so then they say, well, under the unintentional second-degree murder, if you commit a felony and someone dies. So in this case, I believe the felony, well, I think he may have said this, the felony would be felony assault in terms of having the knee to the back, that is a felony assault. Someone dies, Mr. Floyd died as a result. So then that gets them to second degree murder. Uh, what, what do you think about that in terms of a possible uh, rationale in terms of why they may not have tried to go for first? I mean, I, I think that's, I think if, if you're struggling with, because of the policy and procedure of the police department to use that tactic to subdue and arrest uh, and detain uh, criminal suspects, then it seems like at least a logical one um, in terms of abiding by the law and, uh, you know, using using those protocols and those means of operating under the, the authority of uh, the police department to, to utilize those types of tactics. And, and it, it is important too, I think it, it falls in line with the unintentional subdivision of second degree murder that uh, you cause the death of someone without intent uh, while you're in either inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm upon the victim, you know, to uh, when the perpetrator is restrained. Uh, and that's, the, you know, they have a they have a restraining order 
in uh, aspect of the subdivision of that unintentional killing statute. So I can see how that interplay between the statutory second degree murder charge and the policies that were approved and utilized by the state of Minnesota's law enforcement could lead the prosecutor's office to come to that determination uh, uh, under felony murder rule and under just a second degree uh, unintentional murder murder charge. So uh, while, while, again, I think it's, it's not a logical leap to come to that conclusion, uh, I, would, I would stand on my prior assertion that under the facts and circumstances of the case, um, you know, first degree murder would, would be, I would have been comfortable as a prosecutor if I'm putting a prosecutor hat on moving forward with that, even knowing that other cases haven't necessarily gone the way that we think they should, uh, or justice has not been served. We know that we have an imperfect justice system, uh, but based on the eyewitness accounts, videos, uh, corroborating evidence in the case, I still feel that there was a strong case for first degree murder, but I do understand, and I do agree with your assessment of how they reached the conclusion to at least upgrade it to a second degree murder charge based on their statutes, policies, procedures, and, and governmental rule of law in that state. And even, I think, um when you talk about in terms of first degree, if they had gone with first degree murder, that wouldn't preclude the prosecutors from offering second degree um, during plea negotiations or having the jury consider um, second degree or lesser charges at trial if the defense elicited or brought out evidence that is not first, so it has to be something less, if anything um, at all. Let's talk, talk about the fact that the three other officers, former officers, were charged as accessory to second-degree murder. What does that mean? So uh, as the accessory, they're, they're operating either with the knowledge, not necessarily to intend to, to kill the, the victim. That's, that's something that a lot of people have to wrap their mind around. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're operating under the intent the same intent of the person that actually commits the killing. But as an accessory, they did become a party to and did become aware, at least of the fact that a killing was likely to occur or could occur as per their involvement. Uh, and because of those facts and the knowledge of the situation being what it is, that's why you can bring those charges against those three officers uh, based on, again, I think what the investigation shows is um, you have three other officers there who could have reasonably said, okay, enough is enough. Uh, we, we have enough manpower here to handle one person and get them in a vehicle safely and securely without having to push the envelope, regardless of what the policy and procedures are, that resulting in an unintentional killing under second degree murder uh, with knowledge that that is a possibility and potential uh, because of like, you know, the 40 odd cases that they've been trained and they've been made aware of. Uh, during their pursuit, even though there's some evidence to show that I think one officer had been three weeks on the job, one officer was four days into the job there uh, with that specific police department. Uh, that's that's the reason why you can be charged with an accessory is the knowledge of the, the potentiality of a felony being committed or a life being taken. All right, let's, the uh, medical examiner for that county um, completed an autopsy report, which is standard um, required the autopsy report in terms of for cause of death did state that this was a homicide and did list in terms of contributory factors mainly um, Mr. Floyd's um, was stated that um, he died from cardiopulmonary arrest um, there was also controlled substances in his system uh, methamphetamines, a, another controlled substance. Um, and then the family had uh, independent autopsy done. And the results of that autopsy was that there was no heart issue and that Mr. Floyd died from asphyxia and that the um, oxygen um, was cut off, the flow of oxygen was cut off, um, you know, having the knee to his neck and that resulted in his death. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of having two separate autopsy reports and how would that play out 
and a potential trial? Well, to speak to this first, and you know, I'll toss this back to you. The the prosecutor's office is going to rely on the county medical examiner that performs the the medical exam initially. Uh, that's what they're going to base um, their investigation on in terms of in terms of coming up with what I believe is their argument against premeditation uh, and intent intent to kill with asphyxiation not being attributed to the cause of death. That takes that takes a little bit more of the sting, so to speak, out of pushing for a first degree murder and moving more into the unintentional killing because that medical exam doesn't necessarily state that the knee being on the neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds was a necessary contributing cause or factor uh, to the loss of life under the situation and circumstances. So based on that, I can see how that would go to possibly substantiate why the upgrade was only two a second degree unintentional murder charge. However, you know, as a society and community, what we look at with the second uh, medical examiner's report is it's saying sort of the opposite. So uh, we had an off-air candid discussion about the difference between the prosecutor's office relying on the medical examiner's office that conducts the first one and the family having a second opinion, uh, so to speak, and having a second autopsy performed uh, and the interplay with that at trial. And that's where uh, I would feel comfortable tossing that one back to you uh, with your experience in this, this, this department and, and getting your viewpoint on why the second opinion wouldn't be used by the prosecutor's office as a former prosecutor's officer, wouldn't be relied on to the same degree. Yeah. So I think in terms of that, you know, you're, you're correct. You, we do have two separate and in some aspect, they are competing autopsy reports for a potential civil trial, then the second autopsy report would, would certainly be used. And that the civil trial, it's not the government or the DA's office versus, um, you know, an individual at our, it's two separate parties. So it would be the family of Mr. Floyd suing the city government and or the police department. They would use their autopsy report um, their medical examiner, the police department, the city would use the original medical examiner. And then you have what's you know referred to as the battle of experts. And then the jury decides in terms of which expert they would rely on. In the criminal case, the prosecutors are always relying on the medical examiner's report. So they can't go and use the independent report because then as the defense then you just call the original medical examiner and say, aren't you the medical examiner for this county? Aren't you the one responsible for all of the autopsy reports for every homicide that occurs in this county? And then for whatever reason, the prosecutor's office is choosing not to use their own reliable expert that they use for every other case. So prosecution can't open up that can of worms. They have to go with the original autopsy report and like you said, that doesn't list asphyxia as the, the cause of death. And even though you have a separate autopsy report, it wouldn't make sense for the defense to call the independent one because that hurts them even more. Um, so they're going to be bound by the original report. Um, a potential defense that I saw raised or saw someone mention is that one of the former officers at the time uh, stated to Chauvin to turn over Mr. Floyd uh, because he was worried if this would be excited delirium. Um, and I don't know a, a lot about that at this point. I have to do some additional research. But excited delirium seems to be um, a term that's used, that's you know, taken hold of where if someone has ingested or has taken controlled substances and it causes them to be in this excited state. And the argument is that that's what led um, to, to Mr. Floyd's death. If that though was to be used as a possible defense, the defense would have to bring in an expert to say that because like, like we talked about, that's not, I don't think that's not mentioned explicitly in the original autopsy report. 
I think too, there's a, I've heard a similar, well, actually I had a, a very candid discussion with a, a member of law enforcement at one of the protests that I attended. Uh, and it was a very candid and, and enlightening discussion. And his, his viewpoint was if there was any suspected drug use by George Floyd at the time of the arrest, that has to be a consideration by law enforcement. And at any point in time, if things tend to go south and could be related, to any alleged drug use or any type of intoxication, you move from law enforcement to a first responder. It then becomes your duty to ensure that the safety of the person that you're attempting to arrest becomes your first priority. So you go from uh, you know, protecting the laws of the state and in, ensuring that they are, they are served and they're properly followed to protecting the life of the individual that you're apprehending or you're detaining. Uh, so under that term, and again, I, I like you, I, I'm not as well versed in that area of the law and that, that type of testimony and that type of medical examination and medical terminology. But based on that conversation with, like I said, a law enforcement officer here, law enforcement officer here in North Carolina, you do have a duty as an officer to act as a first responder if you believe that intoxicants are at play and could result in a uh, you know potentially bad health outcome for the person that you're apprehending. And so even if even if they didn't call an expert witness, it's still as a defense attorney, it's still a cross-examining point that you can bring out with the officers that do take the stand or do testify that that is part of their duty and their responsibility in conducting a proper arrest. Uh, in civil law, we have what's known as an egg skull doctrine, which is you take you take the victim of a crime as they come. So if they come with a pre-existing condition, that has to be that has to go into the consideration that goes before a jury. In a criminal matter, it's not necessarily the same standard, but in law enforcement, there is a standard of appreciating the circumstances with which you're dealing with in apprehending the suspect. If intoxication is one of those aspects that has to be taken into consideration in terms of the measures used to conduct a proper and safe arrest, not only to uphold the laws of the land, but to protect the citizen with which you're arresting. Okay. All right, well, I'm looking at our time. I think we've covered a lot for this one. As always, if we have misstated something, um, please let us know. We will correct it in the next episode. If there's something you'd like for us to talk about specifically about this case or another case or any of the cases we've discussed, just let us know that as well. And we will try to touch on that as well. So until next time. All right. Until next time, this is uh, straight talk with no chaser. Enjoy. And we look forward to having you guys back again next time.